Good morning. Welcome to Secret to My Success. My name is Alan Bornstein, and I'm here with... Luis Alasea. Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here once again in this beautiful, beautiful morning. So we are here to talk to business owners about their journey, their venture, how they went from being employed by somebody to being self-employed. Luis brought some amazing guests in here that have played professional sports, football, baseball. Football, baseball, uh, basketball, and uh, golf. We've had some wonderful people, and this is about learning their secret to their success to help you grow your business. Thanks for being here with us this morning. We're so glad you could be here. If you have an interesting story, if you know somebody, that you think we should be talking to, we'd like to hear from you. You can reach me, Alan, 561-953-2007 at extension 101. Once again, my name is Alan. Secret to my success, 561-953-2007, extension 101. Please call us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Good day. This is Alan, Secret to my success, here with the lovely Dawn. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good, good day, Alan. Good day. Good day. How are you? I'm I'm fantastic. I'm good. Yeah. How was your Thanksgiving? Um, it was uneventful, which is always a great thing. Did you do like a redneck Thanksgiving? Dump a frozen turkey into a fry later or something? Watch it blow up? No, 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 no. That, we, that's no, not you. No, it wasn't me. What'd you do? Went to my aunt's house. Uh, pretty simple. There was only a few of us. My dad was there, so he was. He's a character and funny. He would be a good person to get on your show. You guys would probably yell at each other. That would be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, so it was nice. It was peaceful, again, uneventful, and uh, that's always good in our family, you know? That's good. Yeah. Well, we are without Louie once again. He has a family emergency, but we are expecting a pretty cool and interesting, exciting show today. So before I introduce our guests, we have a little clip that we're going to play. And it's going to talk a little bit about some of the background on this gentleman that's going to be here with us. In fact, we're going a whole hour today because we believe that this is going to be worthy. Right on. You got it? Are you, you got ready? got it. I'm ready. Tee it up, Tom. One of the most famous extraterrestrial events in American history was the 1969 Berkshire UFO sightings. Several groups of people in different locations reported making contact on the same exact night. And they all had slightly different experiences. And if you ask, many of them still struggle to describe what happened that night. But something happened. In fact, there were so many eyewitnesses, the state of Massachusetts couldn't dismiss this as some deranged thing. They actually recorded it in the state's archives as historically true. Tom Reed was one of those eyewitnesses in the Berkshires. He was only six at that time in 1969, but his life hasn't been the same since. All right, Tom, what happened during your encounter? Hey, thanks for having me on, Jesse. You're welcome. Yeah, we, uh, it was Labor Day. It was a holiday, and we were driving through the Sheffield-covered bridge. Um, on, you know, it was like a shortcut home. And as we came out the other side, um, our entire family saw what looked like a sphere. It was uh, a round uh, it looked like a large cue ball, but it was bigger than our station wagon. And it kind of rose from the banks of the, of the Housatonic River off to the left side of the bridge. And as we continued going forward, there was another orange one to our right, which would be like at 5 o'clock if you were a clock. And that one stayed lower to the water. And uh, my mother kept going maybe 20 or 30 yards down the road until she saw a clearing. And when we stopped, we all looked over this clearing, you know, trying to get a second look at this thing. 
And that's when we saw what looked like a large uh, disc-shaped object that was about 100 yards in size. It reminded me a lot of a turtle shell. You know, as a child, I, I referenced things as things I can remember. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, wasn't shiny. It did not look like what you would expect to see. It uh, had a large center to it. It just hovered about three stories high. The, uh, you know, I've mentioned over the years that it kind of put out a light, but it was the sheen or the shell of it itself that kind of emitted this amber or reddish tint to it. And so we, we really just sat there looking at it. We were kind of in awe. And uh, at that point, then it just felt like um, we were deep into a swimming pool, you know, like this pressure change. And there was a tapping sound reminded me of stones hitting underneath the fender wall of a vehicle. But we were already parked. You know, the lights were on, the car was running, but we weren't moving. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the car lit up and then everything kind of went silent. This vacuum, this like vacuum of silence is the way I worded it. And then all of a sudden, bang, everything came back to life again. Crickets, the sounds of nature. And then that's the last thing I remember from being in the vehicle. So what were the health effects that you experienced? Well, my... uh, my brother had marks on his chest behind his right ear. I had a mark on my on my right arm. Uh, my brother and I went pretty much bald by like 22 years old. Not sure what happened there, but we're the only ones in our family to have lost our hair like that. Um, you know, I've had nerve damage. I have very bad eyesight. I've had five operations on my eyes. And um, a friend of mine, too, that was involved in this case, too, has the same eye problem that I do. That is really bizarre. And the state of Massachusetts has classified this as legit. Yeah, yeah. Made the cover of the Boston Globe. Our family got inducted into history. There's a park in our honor in Sheffield, Massachusetts. And uh, it's kind of a, a unique thing to be part of. But, you know, seeing what we did was extraordinary. I mean, I felt privileged to be part of that. And like I've told other people, you know, the, this little off-world incident that we were involved with wasn't all that trying. It was really the beyond world, you know, how people treated us um, you know, after talking about something that they they couldn't get their heads around, you know. Yeah, well, it is a fascinating story. With that being said, let's talk about getting our arms around this. Tom, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. Tom, read. Hey, Hey. Tom. Thanks for being on with us. That was a little clip from a a previous interview you were on. uh, Yeah, fun fun time. Talking about your alien encounter. Yeah. So I, I have a little problem with some of your timing here, and let's just kind of go over it real quick. Your, IMD, okay. your IMDb profile says your birthday is February 12th. It is. 1960. Yep, and, and Jesse Waters had said I was six when I was actually nine. Correct. Okay, so he, uh, was, he was wrong or you were just being vain? <laughs> no, actually, we, we had our first sighting when I was six. He kind of uh, misunderstood, I guess, the, uh, the information that he had looked at. But, uh, yeah, the... the uh, you, the incident. Are you, hold on. Are you trying to tell me? It happened more than one time. Hold on. Are you trying to tell me if Fox News doesn't play honest interviews? Is that what you're telling me? Well, Can we not go down I'm that rabbit hole? No, no, no. We're not going down. Okay. But you were nine years old, not six. I want the record yeah, the corrected. First time, well, the first time we had seen something, I was six. And that's kind of the, uh, the, uh, the area was having a lot of sightings. I mean, it wasn't, 69 was just the one that made all the press, made the news because there were over 250 witnesses to it where the others there weren't. So I don't know where he got the six from, but I guess in 1966 was the first time that uh, a mass sighting took place in the area back in the day. And do you uh, remember that when you were six? Sure. I remember a lot of it. Yeah. It was, school was hard. You know, we owned the, uh, 
the, the reason that um, this got so much attention what do you, you have a question first? You want me to just give you a backstory about this whole thing and just put a bow around it real quick? The floor is yours. Let's hear it, Tom. All right. So I don't know if you've ever been to Great Barrington or, or Sheffield, Massachusetts. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, both of us didn't live too far from there in Hartford, but it's a rural area. And back in the, in the 60s, a lot of the uh, funds or the money that was uh, given to NASA to be rushed to space during that space race period in, in the 60s um, was when this took place. And we had, you know, you had Sikorsky Aircraft, Command Aerospace, you know, Pratt & Whitney, um, Sprague Electric, General Electric, and even NASA was in Massachusetts at the time. NASA's um, corporate office was uh, across the street from MIT in Boston. So a lot of the money that, was, that came from the, uh, the government was filtered through NASA, and NASA hired a lot of these local companies in the Berkshires to... Um, you know, to make capacitors, whatever it was, weapons, all these things that they that um, they at the time felt they needed or, or uh, were in need of to beat Russia to space. Sprague Electric was actually not far from our diner. And, uh, again, my family owned uh, a 1960s diner where I grew up with a jukebox and a whole bit. So to give you an idea um, with respect to the, you know, what it was like to live there, our our diner was the only um, spot where you could actually listen to to rock and roll. You know, we didn't have uh, FM radio stations, and even a local radio station that broadcast the incident um, was an AM station, it was a news station. And so aside from a local paper, um, that was your source for news. And if you wanted to listen to, to the Stones or Credence or whatever back in the day, you either went to the Bowling Alley or you came to our diner. And with our diner being diagonally across the street, if you will, from the second largest racetrack to Saratoga, um, that is where anybody with any extra money kind of hung out. They'd go to our diner, they'd eat, and then they would go to the racetrack. And so with that said, a lot of the people that worked on the space race, to include those who worked on the Goodwill message that was left on the moon in July of 1969, um, were friends or knew my parents. And so... That was the connection that we had with the space race. So six weeks after this goodwill message was left on the moon by Buzz Aldrin, there were a lot of sightings in the area. I think people were were heightened. You know, they were interested in the subject, and everyone was kind of like looking up, right? So a lot of people saw some things that they wouldn't have normally seen. Plus, September 1st, the night of the incident, was also a holiday. And so you had groups of people outside, you know, having barbecues, you know, hanging out, whatever it was they were doing. And so a lot of these people, 250 some odd people, were a witness to the incident of September 1st, 1969, which included our family. The interesting thing is that Unsolved Mysteries, when they did the uh, the program on it, the episode, they rebranded it and they called it the Berkshire's UFO. And so that Berkshire's UFO case is actually my parents' incident, my family's incident. And so, over the years, I guess in 1992... Hold on, hold on. Let, me, let, me, let me double back, Tom. Yeah. So we initially yeah. talked about something happening in 66 and 69. And mm -hmm. that was the incident in 69 that you were a party to that we talked about at the beginning of this introduction. That was 250 yeah, we, people who we, witnessed it. Yeah, we were part of the 66 incident. So what was, 19, the, what was the 66 incident? 1966 was when the 
craft was seen over our farm. We had a horse farm. And a lot of people, you know, they do these interviews and they show us with chickens and stuff. <laughs> My mother uh, raised racehorses, quarter horses, and it was seen over our property. And then in 1967, it was actually um, witnessed by uh, some people at a country club, uh, a lot of locals, people followed it down the road. That was the incident that we were also part of. Um, and that made the, the that made the newspaper. I mean, that's actually, they re-ran the article, actually, from 1967 involving the sighting involving our family and our diner. The thing is, our diner was very rural. There was nothing around. We didn't even have a middle school. That's how small this town was. But it was also very hilly. You had the NORAD towers there, Nike missile sites, Minutemen missiles. I mean, it was it was crawling with government. And um, there's actually the magnesium that was mined for the atom bomb was actually mined in Canaan, Connecticut, which was only three miles from our diner. And there was also a magnesium spill there. A lot of people don't know the background, which is why I'm giving you this, uh, the more factual side of this and why the state of Massachusetts, you know, took it so seriously and gave it that second look that a lot of cases don't get. Now, you say the, then, of course, you say the yeah. state of Massachusetts. Which, well, the Commonwealth. Okay, but which entity within the government did you think took the most interest because the state's a pretty broad term. Oh, the historical society. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is that, you know, I think you, uh, you might've met my father way back when he was uh, an attorney and he was also a politician and mayor. And with that, um, in the eighties, when the Hudson river area, the Hudson river flap, if you will, in New York, uh, made a lot of news. My father was then approached by someone by the name of Robert Bletchman, who was also an attorney and a distant colleague of my father's. He was actually working with Mohammed Ramadan, the president of the Parapsychology Society at the United Nations. And they were planning a symposium to discuss General Assembly 33426, which was first introduced in 1974, the idea of all our states and countries, if you will, to unite and kind of work together to investigate this phenomenon. He wanted to use our family's incident in Sheffield, Massachusetts, the 1969 incident, because of the effect it had on our vehicle and, and the wildlife, and, and because it had so many witnesses to it, and it was broadcast on WSBS radio. Hold on. You just said something. I want some clarification. The effect it had on yeah. your vehicle and the wildlife. What was the effect? It, it, uh, it quieted everything. You know, you, you lost all sound of nature. It um, had an effect on the animals around us. You know, the, it went from, you know, the breeze and the birds and the crickets and the frogs to nothing. It was just like hmm. we were deep underwater. It just silenced everything. And um, so whatever it was that, you know, we saw three objects. I mean, it wasn't one object. We were in the middle of, like, a craft and two what looked like spheres, round cue balls, if you will. Solid. And I've got pictures of it. It's on my webpage. I mean, people have taken pictures of these things since. And um, so we were thinking at one point that maybe, you know, there was some communication going on between these three objects, and we just happened to drive between them, and that's why we were affected by it. Tom, don't really know. Let me ask you this Were question. you the only car that, that uh, the vehicle that was affected or was driving in between them, or was, was there other people in no, their vehicles, or everyone was kind of, they were further away? No, we were, we were the only ones that were, well, there was another family, um, actually, um, she was in Unsolved Mysteries. Um, they were at a lake not too far away, 
And that was the other interesting thing, too, that those who saw this or those that encountered it were all near water. And again, why it was of interest to Bletchman in support of the Hudson River Valley sightings and why it went to the United Nations in support of that because of the credibility behind it and its ties to the space race. And by the way, that went to the United Nations on October 2nd. Hold on, hold on. Before we get to the United Nations, i got to ask you this question, Tom. So you're nine years old. You're in the car with your mom, Mm -hmm. your dad. No, my grandmother, my brother, and my mother. Okay, so you're nine years old, and I've got kids. And if something like that happened, I think my nine-year-old, if they're awake, would stand up in the car screaming, what the heck mm-hmm. was that? Tell me about what happened inside the car. Well, we had seen it before. This was, again, this was not something that wasn't seen by locals a lot, and still is. I mean, there were crop circles there in 2012, 2013. There's all kinds of sightings. People are still reporting things. There's something going on there to this day. So when we saw this in 1969, yes, it was the first time that we were like, you know, up close and personal. It was, we, we were, I don't remember anyone panicking. I mean, my mother stopped the car. She put, there was a telephone pole there where uh, utility trucks would, would stop. It was a very narrow road. It was actually for horse and buggy emergency, you know, vehicles. Type of, it was a dirt road, very bumpy. So we were only going about 15, 20 miles an hour at best. And so when we saw the, the craft in the field, my mom stopped the car. I mean, she put it in park. The car was still running. Um, you know, we were looking out the windows. We didn't have air conditioning in 1969. So and it was a hot night. So oddly hot. Actually, it was like the 90s that day for September. And it was probably still in the 80s when we saw this. We had the windows open. And we were just staring out the window. And uh, at first, we didn't even really see it because the bottom of this thing wasn't putting out like spotlights of light. It was just the front end of it. So if you if you took like let's hypothetically a frisbee, right? You you know you hold your frisbee, you're holding it up, so you're seeing it slightly from the ground. The front of it put out like a sheen, like it was glowing almost, and it it didn't look silver. It was like a goldish with a pewter color in it. It had almost a mixture of, of different tones to it, and even a reddish glow at, at times. But the back side of it, or the left side of it, or the you know, that half backwards or, you know, to, to one side didn't light up at all. But you could still see the whole crash by the amount of light that the shell itself or the outer portion of this vehicle was. It lit up a little bit. And you could see it, see this thing, and it was like it was like a, like a size of a football field. And, and the middle of it, okay, the middle of it was really wide. So... You know, the the top and the bottom are three pieces, right? You've got the top, the middle, and the bottom. The middle section of it made up about 70% of this vessel or craft. The top of it was very narrow, and the bottom was narrow. And it had the band that ran around the middle of it looked like, um, you know, it had lines in it, like a tire that went around the middle. And so we're looking at this thing. I'm trying to get the shape of it. I'm looking at, you know, we've seen things in the sky before, but... Now we're like more fascinated with it. I mean, we were part of something extraordinary, right? We weren't scared. You were excited and, and yeah, like you said, fascinated. So it wasn't, it wasn't out of the ordinary. It sounds like what you're saying. It wasn't out of the ordinary. Tom, the average guy would have wet his pants. I mean, really? Come on. I would have been wanting to jump up there and (laughs) like, how can I get up there? I was more like, wow, you know? (laughs) And, and, And so first when we went through the bridge, the first thing we saw was this white sphere that looked to me like a cue ball because it did not, it wasn't like a, uh, a light that bled. 
it was a very defined circular, you know, object. And it kind of rose from the banks of the river. I've never said it came out of the water because I don't know where it came from. But when we saw it, it rose to about two to three stories and started going over a cornfield in the same direction our car was. So the one on the right, my brother happened to be on the right side of the back seat, and he was looking out the window close to him, just kind of seeing if there's anything else, right? And that's when he saw this one that looked orange, a round sphere. The center of it was moving like an ocean wave, if you will. It was something was turning. It was orange and red, much smaller than the one that on the left side of our car. Then again, it could have been a lot further away, but it was also very low to the water, probably, I'm going to guess, 10 feet off the water at a bend in this river, the Housatonic River in Sheffield, same, right near our, our restaurant. I mean, you could walk to our restaurant. And so we split those two. And when we got down maybe 30 or 40 yards down the road is when we saw this other one. So all three of these were still doing something at the same time. Now, we were actually looking around for the white one, that sphere, if you will. When we stopped, that's what we were looking for. Like, what the hell was that, right? And that's when we saw this disc. So we feel or think that whatever these spheres were, these round circular objects were, they were both over water and the disc was over water too. It was very swampy. So whatever was going on here seems to us that it had to do with the water. You know, this is the only area that had that kind of water to it. So why, you know, so go back to yeah. Robert Bletchman, the attorney. I knew he was an attorney over, I think, in Manchester, Connecticut. He was like a family yeah, law attorney, I think, right? I think you knew him as well. You knew him as well, didn't you? Yeah, my, my family did, but he was a family attorney, wasn't he? He was our family's attorney. He was my father's attorney. Okay, so why was Bletchman so interested in water with these things? Go back to that. Okay, so Robert Bletchman, um, Democratic attorney, uh, very active back in the day. I think he was on Broad Street in Manchester. Um, he and my father knew each other when my father was being backed by Senator Christopher Dodd in his run for office and Governor O'Neill, I think it was. And um, so that's how they knew each other. And Robert was very much into the UFO topic at the time. And we had no idea what MUFON was. Robert Bletchman was public relations director for MUFON. Being an attorney, he kind of ran the show for MUFON for a while. And so he wanted to bring some attention to the Hudson River Valley sightings. But there really wasn't anyone that he knew of to trust that would, you know, be able to um, describe or someone that wouldn't make him look silly by mentioning his family, right? So he wanted to use my our, our case and the, the credibility or the pillar standing my father had at the time, being that he was in office. And when he mentioned our case in support of the Hudson River Valley sightings and Cash and Landerman in Texas, um, following that symposium, on October 2nd, my father would lose his life on the anniversary of that symposium's date. My father lost his life also on October 2nd. Hmm. So with that, under questionable circumstances, the being that we were part of the Sheffield community, Ray Barrington, that kind of thing, we got a call by the Historical Society to asking for documents about what happened to my father. <clears throat> And um, in doing so, the more they looked into it, the more interesting it got. And I'm sure the Historical Society was also looking at, you know, bringing some attention to the Historical Society. I doubt everybody's going to flood the place to look at the latest musket ball, right? So they wanted something different, right? And I think that was part of it. But they were very, um, you know, the emails that I got and the information they were looking for was just the more they spoke about it, the more interesting 
they became, the, the case itself became, and the more uh, interest it got from the other board members. And so they asked WSBS to, you know, a letter, you know, archives. They reached out to an attorney by the name of um, Kessler, who then worked with the Roswell, not the Roswell Museum so much, but the Roswell Research Library that's part of the museum in, in New Mexico. And they did some digging. And then, of course, they reached out and talked to someone, um, the Black Bolt, you know, about the, you know, trying to get documentation about the symposium itself. Tom, and, can I ask you uh, a question about your, your dad? Um, yeah, sure. You had said he lost his life on the, what, October 2nd, the same date as? Anniversary, yeah. And you said they found it, it was found suspicious, or can you? I think you said questionable. Questionable, mm -hmm. questionable. Well, what happened, my father was talking about writing a book about the documentation and the papers as he got back from the UN uh, via Bletchman, and he made copies and gave them to my father. My father didn't actually go to the symposium. We actually legally retained Bletchman with a check for 500 bucks just to make it legal so that he would say certain things and not say certain things. And uh, we trusted him. I was the one who actually gave him the check. I went to Manchester and gave him the check myself. And um, so, so my father went to work after talking about writing a book about the incident. And I think he was also talking a little bit about, um, you know, what else the money was being used for, you know, weapons back in the day and other things that, you know, that um, his information that he, the information that he had as a whole, he was putting into his book, along with right. what happened in, in Sheffield. So he went to work, his head hit the desk. He was rushed to Yellow Haven Hospital, um, where he was burning up with the temperature. The doctors gave him um, all kinds of antibiotics and shots and, you know, whatever, or, you know, just you name it. And um, the more they treated him with antibiotics, the worse he became, the higher his temperature went. Wow. And so he um, basically asphyxiated and died. Wow. And um, after an autopsy, at first, they said, oh, well, we think he had Legionnaire's disease, which was ridiculous. Um, so we had an autopsy performed, and he had a rare fungus in his blood, and nobody really knows where it came from. They, the CDC was called in from Atlanta, and they uh, hired a local um, company to sweep his office and test his office. And, you know, they looked in his air conditioning units and the whole bit. And when he went back, his, his laptop was wiped out. There were new sealant tiles in his office, which were never, there's no work order for it. And uh, just kind of weird stuff. And um, there was some glass found in his AC unit. And so this happened in Bridgeport, Connecticut, by the way. Hmm. And so the mayor of Bridgeport, who was also a friend of my father's, um, you know, looked into it. And, uh, you know, they paid my family off $25,000 not to, not to sue the city or, you know, tie this into the city in any way. And then they condemned the building and they shut it down. It hasn't been open to this day. Wow. The building's still standing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still there. And yeah. it's not being used? Nope, it's empty. It's been empty since he died. Wow. Wow. It's a big, it's a large building. You know, it's pretty big. So, um, I mean, it's probably, I don't know, 30,000 square feet. It's a huge place. And they and, paid um, you guys off not to talk about it or or not talk about it, but not to, to sue them. Not to question it. Not to question it. Not to... And they, they inducted, they gave my father a proclamation for his, um, you know, work and, and his uh, role in education and, and um, the community. 
And then, um, yeah, the mayor of Bridgeport um, handed my, came to my father's funeral, by the way, along with the Milano family and the Palazzo family and a bunch of other people. Um, but, uh, yeah, they at the funeral, um, he handed my mother a, a check for $25,000. Hmm. Wow. Was there any conditions, stipulations, or it was just here and wink, wink, nod, yeah. nod, we're not going any farther with this? You know how it works. Yeah. You know, just, uh, yeah, just leave it alone. We're sorry. Uh, we had nothing to do with it, but don't stir stuff up. You know, just don't, um, that kind of thing. So um, we did. Then she, you know, uh, you know, then we, she moved to Florida, you know, not far from me. And, um, and just kind of got out of there. And now, now, now I take care of her. You know, now she lives in my house. But it was really hard on her, too, because, you know, there was, um, you know, she was the breadwinner. And we had the townhouse, you know, or they had the townhouse on Savannah uh, Rock, outside of West Haven, right on the ocean. And, um, you know, she couldn't afford it without his income. So, I mean, she walked away fairly well, but at the same time, I mean, he was only 54 years old, Alan. Wow. He died at 54. Wow. wow. Way too young. He, he was, uh, yeah. And he's perfectly healthy. Perfectly healthy, 54-year-old attorney and mayor. You know, you've got 365 days a year where something could happen to you. It just happens to be on the same day that your family's incident was mentioned at the United Nations in support of General Assembly 33-426. And now you're writing a book about the information that came back from that particular meeting. And then you pass suddenly like this. It, it, just, it didn't make sense to a lot of people. And that was another reason that, um, you know, the state of Massachusetts was... You know, kind of, um, you know, it was it was kind of politically charged to say, you know, what, what happened to, to Howard Rigg, right. you know, and and so again, when they started looking into this, uh, they had asked me, you know, can you send me these documents and these papers, if you will, and I had forwarded them to uh, the Kessler Law Firm, and they authenticated that they were, um, you know, real documents, that they were real people in these positions at the time, and this is what they talked about, and sure enough, these came from the UN. And so that was a bunch. Then I had to take a polygraph test, which I passed with a, like a 99.1%, you know. And then there was the uh, ties to the, the space race, and they were able to track that back. Sure enough, we were the only, <laughs> the only eatery really around, and yep, they, you know, it was a hot spot back in the day. There were only some of the places you could eat, and we were the only one with a jukebox. So, hey, Tom, um, on that note, we, we need to mm-hmm. take a commercial break. Just cut right here and come back and kind of get in a whole lot more detail. We'll be back after some of our sponsors. When it comes to health coverage, you want solid value from a trustworthy company you can rely on. Florida Blue offers Medicare Advantage plans that can help you get more out of your health coverage. And don't you want more? Call Apple Insurance, your local agency for Florida Blue, at 888-MY-BLUE-8 to have all your Medicare questions answered and learn about different options. Don't settle for less than the value and stability Florida Blue has delivered throughout the state of Florida to Medicare beneficiaries for more than 25 years. Value, security, knowledge, and trust. Blue Medicare from Florida Blue means more. Call Apple Insurance at 888-MY-BLUE-8 today to speak to a licensed agent about your Medicare Advantage options. That's 888-MY-BLUE-8. Apple Insurance and Florida Blue. Call 888-MY-BLUE-8 today. Florida Blue is an independent license of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. 
is Alan, Secret to My Success, back here with Dawn and Tom Reed. Tom, you still awake? Yeah. <laughs> Come yeah, on, buddy, really. wake up. We got another 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah. We got to keep it going. Oh, my God. Really? Okay. A couple questions. We're going to kind of maybe flip this a little. Yeah. I saw an okay. article here. It says, Sheffield keeps its word, removes disputed UFO monument. What was that about? Yeah. Oh, so anybody listening, just go to ufopark.org, and you'll see all the documents about this. Okay, so let me uh, let me just wrap this up real quick. So in, in doing so, what happened, in short, I'm going to circle back to what you wanted to talk about. So anyway, after all this, the community of the whole, the state, looked into all this. They interviewed people. They had the attorney. They worked at the Roswell Research Library, and they put this to a vote. They said, you know, you would like to put a marker in, would like to put in a monument or something in, in this family's honor, preferably toward, to Howard in his honor. Um, how do we make this happen? And so they they asked everyone, you know, um, you know, would this hold up in court? Like some of our, you know, like Billy the Kid and some of the others, those who altered the railroad. If you have such a profound incident that you alter the natural progression of the community, then the event as a whole is true. And so they asked, you know, did the Reed's Diner and did the Reed's incident alter the natural progression of the Berkshires? I mean, did they alter the natural progression of this community? And if so, then it was profound enough to be deemed historically true. And so they voted, yes, it, it was. We had police records. We had even a... The uh, officer who, uh, in Sheffield, the, the chief, if you will, and his son used to come in our diner because so many fights broke out that there were police records for that. You know, they were able to show that, wow, this whole UFO thing was so hard for people to accept because we were outsiders to begin with. We were from New York. And so, you know, we were outsiders to begin with. Fights broke out. There was a paper trail, the whole thing. So they compiled it all, and they voted, and they said, yep. This incident was profound enough that the Reed's Diner and their UFO or off-world incident altered the natural progression of the community. Therefore, it's historically true, and it warrants induction into the archives of, of Massachusetts. And so not to be out there by themselves, the Historical Society contacted the governor's office, and Governor Charles D. Baker um, issued a citation that uh, acknowledged that we were now the first family in the United States to have a bona fide UFO encounter. And then those documents went to a judge in the 30th District Court where they were sealed. You know, so this in doing so, even now if the governor decided to backtrack and say, we really don't want to do it, he would have to have a good enough reason to take it to court, to have that um, citation and those historical records rescinded, I guess. But being that it was sealed in a, in a court by a judge, it would be very difficult to to backtrack on that so that was a so in other words for moving forward uh, we are the first family to have had a uh, a true ufo encounter and to work to be acknowledged in archives in the united states hmm. so that opens doors for a lot of other people too so as far as the monument goes i was contacted in my home in tennessee to say look we've got a monument going in or a marker if you will in your know, family's honor and uh, so I drove up to Sheffield. The farm this incident actually took place on, this property, um, they had agreed to turn up a section of it over to, to Great Barrington and Sheffield to use for this marker, to be used for kind of a, I guess, like a landmark. After they moved the, mar the monument there, which was news to me, um, the town of Sheffield got a lot of complaints by some 
high rollers in town. They didn't like it. They didn't like the subject and all this. So they fought me tooth and nail to to move it. And I'm like, you can put it wherever you want. I didn't build it. I had nothing to do with it. You, yeah, why would they be right? Fighting? And you didn't even ask to have it put up. Why right? would they like, be fighting you? Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see a lot of the documents that went back and forth. So we had this very disgruntled uh, woman on the um, board of selectmen. Her name was Nadine. So apparently Nadine okayed it when the actual acting mayor, if you will, was away on vacation. So when the mayor came back, she had gotten complaints about what is this thing doing there? Mm. What, it's UFO thing. This is before the Tic Tac and everybody kind of had a, you know, uh, realized that this was a true phenomenon. Um, so she felt like, oh, well, Reed is a thousand miles away. I'll just say he put it here. I'll dodge a bullet and, you know, be done with it and we'll move it and, you know, that kind of thing. Well, unfortunately, wow. I have a lot of friends in that area who were like, wait a minute, what are you doing? And so they stormed the town hall and they said, what are you doing? He didn't put it there. Made, you know, um, basically is lying. Actually, she committed blatant malice if you really get you know, into it because right. she actually installed it herself. The town had records that they paid, you know, to have it done. They actually hired the contractor. Uh, Copeland, no, Copeland and Page Law Firm in Boston, and they used their own public works department to put it in place. Hmm. And then, because I don't live there, and she got in hot water over it, she just kind of blamed me for it. When I made the paper, she kind of had to stick to her guns. And so they did move it. And in doing so, um, you know, I had some friends on TV's Ancient Aliens, Mike Barra. Ancient Aliens came out, and we did a uh, we shot there in 2018, I think. And afterwards, they donated um, a new plaque, and uh, in conjunction with movie director Louis Morneau, uh, he uh, produced uh, or directed, uh, you know, Bats with Diamond Phillips and, and um, A Beast Among Us and a few others, um, retroactive with James Blue Jay. Well, his brother and I went to school together, so they talked and they made a sculpture, and then the money that was donated by TV's H and Aliens or Perithius Films um, went, this plaque they made was then affixed and inserted into this uh, sculpture that was um, donated by the family, uh, M- 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 Louis Marneau and Lenny Marneau. Uh, yeah, anyway. And so that just kind of really uh, got everyone excited that still had the park, and even though the monument was gone, you know, that the park was here to stay. And then, of course, uh, the family of B.B. King, you know, I'm friends with Rita King, his mm-hmm. daughter. She donated a bench. And then, um, you know, the family of Stephen Ray Vaughan, his nephew, um, is my booking manager. And so uh, Stephen Ray Vaughan's family uh, donated a bench, uh, Tyrone Vaughan specifically. And um, Jimmy Vaughn's son. I I knew Jimmy Vaughn from back in the days when I worked at the Agora Ballroom in Hartford. Uh, They warmed up um, the Stray Cats, I think it was, and that's where I met him originally. So with that, Travel Channels made donations. uh, Travis Walton made donations. uh, Mike Barr himself, um, you know, Unsolved Mysteries filmed there. And, you know, there's a bench donated on their behalf due to the money that they donated to the park. And so it's grown and, and, and it's become like this tourist attraction now. And so, so with that, um, you know, I look at it as being an extension of my family's diner, which was like this judgment-free place. And so even though I don't live there, we live a thousand miles away, it's still kind of an honor to have it because it's in my father's honor. You know, if it wasn't for him, none of this would have been possible. Tom, let me ask you. There's a lot of people that are totally, you know, enamored with this, totally interested in this. 
But there's probably the flip side of a bunch of people that are saying that none of this real. It's a money-making scheme. You've figured out a way because you are a business owner, and that's why you're here on our show, Secret to My Success. But you've actually made some money. You've actually been able to parlay some of this into some of the things that you're doing professionally. Explain to those people that would question it what your true motives are. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm going to, like, jump in. But Are you going to help him? Uh, kind of, yeah. He was six hold years on, old, and he was nine years old. He was nine years old, not six. He was six we the first time, that. and then he was nine. And what is he? He's going to come up with this scheme at six years? I mean, I didn't if say he it was did, a scheme. then he's... No, Excuse no, no, no. me, I've been brilliant, but I'm just I saying. I didn't say it was a scheme. I'm but, saying the perception of what people. But could people be think thinking. that. Well, yes. I would say to those people, he was six years old and nine, and nine, six, and nine. First time okay. having it six, and the second one was nine. So again, if he thought of that at that age, then he's a freaking genius. But I'm we're not saying. talking about him thinking about it at that age. We're talking about okay, him as an adult. You can answer the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, little, I, I think it's awesome she I came to your fence there, Tom. That's all good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, no, it's great. So let me answer that because um, there is a misconception. I don't make money on this park. It costs me money. Okay. I don't make a dime on the park. I have to pay to maintain it. I have to pay for wood chips. You know, I have to pay to have it mowed. I have to, you know, the whole bit. That park runs me about $40 a cut. It has to be cut at least three times a month. Um, you know, uh, I have to, uh, you know, go in there and trim the trees and get you know, uh, keep the weeds down. You know what it's like to, can you imagine what it costs you to maintain a park? You know, I don't, we don't make a cent. I don't, I don't sell books. I don't sell anything. When I do these TV shows, I don't get paid a dime. You can't get paid for a documentary because otherwise it's looked at as they're um, steering your responses and decisions and things like that. Yeah. Anything that I get from doing a documentary goes right back to the park to help maintain it. That park probably costs me, I don't know, five grand a year. Not that some people think it's a lot of money, but it adds up. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, and so, yeah, we, um, no, it's, uh, you know, I'd rather have a park like that in our honor than the money that it would generate. You know, it's kind of neat to have, be the first person to have something like that. Right. Now, now, as far as my career goes and things, and what I would say to answer people who think that this is, you know, there's no such thing as UFOs, well, they're absolutely... Anyone who doesn't know by now that we're not alone, in my opinion, is just overly ignorant. You know, we look at it this way, too. We've had, what, five global extinctions. We've had, what, 40 million, over 40 million, uh, you know, wipe off the face of the earth. We've now got, um, what, uh, something like 8.7 million species of animals living here. Now, if you've got five global extinctions and almost 9 million species of animals living here today, they're obviously coming from somewhere because you can't just have one or two of the same species of anything and breed and, and be healthy. You know, you'll die off by being inbred. So my, my thing is, I think Earth is our galaxy's arc. Species have been here, being brought here to preserve life, not destroy it or, or, or hmm. what have you. I mean, we've got this planet of ours rotates on a very unique axis which allows for a multitude of different uh, climates, which is conducive to certain forms of life. And we have brackish water, salt water, fresh water. This planet of ours is instrumental in preserving life. And I think that's why the interest in water. Now, as far as people thinking, oh, we're the only ones out there, I think we're way beyond the uh, 
the idea that we're alone. I mean, even a space shuttle has live bacteria on it when it comes back. There's water on Mars. You know, maybe we haven't um, openly uh, admitted to the general public, you know, with respect to this closure, that uh, we have intelligent life, but we certainly have found life elsewhere. But, Tom, it takes, it takes people, like, generations to get over this. I mean, for how many years did everybody think the world was flat? Huh. I mean, pe- people were, you know, committing others to, you know, how could it be round, all this other stuff. And it took years and years for people to accept change. So, I, you know, I go back and I was telling some people that I knew that we were having you on the show. And the first question that came back to me was, and I don't want to be, you know, rude or inconsiderate. Was they're they're coming back and reciting to me Independence Day when uh, the guy said that he was abducted by aliens, and I'm not saying never said that you've been abducted. You had an alien incident that you had exposure, but mm-hmm. there's all these people out there that come up with this crazy stuff to diminish <laughs> your experiences. How, how do you yeah, slap like them the- around without getting arrested? Well, I don't even let it bother me because anybody who feels that way, you know, in my opinion, hasn't gotten through high school. I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, this, is, this, this is not um, this is not something new. I mean, we, I mean, for God's sakes, and we just look at the amount of dollars spent, you know, with respect to the the Pentagon or my my friend Lou Alvando or you know who was with the with the Pentagon and, and that kind of thing. I mean, you don't spend the billions and billions of dollars to research. A UFO topic if there's not some truth to it, right? That's just mm. ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, you know, it might bother me because I think it's so stupid that people would feel that way. I mean, really, we're we've got 8.7 million animals on this planet of ours, and we're the only one in the entire multiverse to have anything. Come on, I mean, just common sense tells you that there's more of a chance that we're not alone than that we are. And to answer, you know, Alan's question before about, you know, how I was able to get so much attention to this, yeah, I had ties in film and television. I had a modeling agency in Miami, opened up Miami Models. And with that, I had a lot of contacts in film. And so after the passage of my father, you know, I mentioned this to an awful lot of people, just as friends, you know, not critically more than that. And sure, you know, I was able to, you know, get uh, some documentaries done on this because it was something I felt very passionate about. I didn't want the incident to be turned into a circus. Mm -hmm. I wanted to preserve it for what it was. And even with the contacts I had, it's been very difficult to do that. Tom, but I've known you for a long time and for years I've known you and none of this ever came out. What, what triggered the event? Was it the passing of your father that you finally said, I'm going to talk about this a little more openly? Yeah, my brother, after my father died, he goes, you know, it's time we did something with it. But um, I've talked about this my whole life. I mean, there are news articles going back to the 90s, you know, uh, 80s even. I just, uh, you know, it's not for everybody. I mean, I have a life and I had a career and I have a single father. And, you know, I focused on, you know, putting food on a table and being successful and driving a nice car and having a nice bike. <laughs> you right. So, you know, I there was no reason to bring it up. I never really thought it was uh, as important as it was. But as it turns out, a lot of people in New, New England or the Berkshires, you know, were also very passionate about it because they were thrown under the bus. They were picked on in school. I mean, a lot of the people that had our backs, if you will, picture this. Now, we have this diner. 
you could walk to the school, the elementary school from our diner. And so my mother, you know, being at the bus didn't go to everyone's house because it's so rural. Rather than have the children walk a quarter mile and stand on the side of the road in the freezing cold, their wives would just drop them off at our diner. And so my mom ran tabs. You know, at the end of every Friday, hopefully, <laughs> they would pay their tab. And in the meantime, the kids could have pancakes, eggs, bacon, sausage, whatever they wanted. And my mom would give them quarters and then drop them in the jukebox and everyone would kind of eat together. And about 20 or so kids and I would all walk to school or ride our little banana seat bikes, you know, to school together. And then after school, they'd bring the bikes back to our diner. And uh, until they were picked up, my mom would deep fry these big baskets of fries in bacon fat. They were awesome. And mm-hmm. then serve them to the kids and they could munch on those and she'd hand them more quarters until their parents picked them up. So it was those kids who are now bikers, <laughs> who are now political figures in town. They're historians, they're judges, they're whatever. And collectively they came together and, um, you know, uh, gave statements and, and um, testimony uh, to the historical society. Sounds like a movie. Sounds like it could be a movie. (laughs) It probably has been. It has been. It's been several TV shows and films and documentaries and so on. But they never get it right. And that's what's frustrating to me. They focus on the the wow and um, not the why and how. So that's a good point or a good place, right, to transition. So you had said in the beginning about focusing on the truth of what happened and not so much how it's been. Um, Treated. Right. So yeah. the stage is yours. Hold on before you answer that. Okay, forget it. It's Alan. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> I hear when that happens. You're going to go there. But I, I, Tom, have you had another experience since 1969? Oh, no. We've got, um, you know, a lot of, uh, it's weird. I've had a lot of like, a paranormal activity around our house and things like that. And, you know, noises and sounds and things like that. But nothing, not really. But nothing you that you would me. consider, and you know. In the no, no, same, like, no. that same of nineteen sixty. No, nothing at that level. No. Okay. I mean, this was this was something that was local to the area. You know, we were probably part. We we're probably you know wrong place at the wrong time. Or then again, we were part of something we, we we've never been able to connect that. One of the things I will tell you though, a lot of people have asked me, you know, what's your blood type? I don't know if you've looked into the O negative blood groups, hmm. but it does show that O negative people, you know, as, a, as a populace, right? O negative. Those who have O negative blood have a lot of differences in their in their body temperature. Like I, my body temperature runs at ninety seven point one, not ninety eight point six. Hmm. And oddly enough, even though it only makes up maybe thirteen percent of the entire world, nine of us in our family are O negative. Tom, I, Tom, I got to stop you. We're sitting here, and Don and I are pointing to each other. Both of us are O negative. Mm-hmm. So you know what I mean. Then your body temperature probably runs lower than normal. Actually, mine runs higher. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't. Oh, that's a characteristic of O negative blood. A characteristic of, a, a huh. characteristic of Alan. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's hot. I thought you were the one that was hot. Well, I didn't say hot like that. I'm Don, sorry. Oh, I love you. I'm Don, sorry. Don is hot. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I wanted to mention this to you, too. Speak O negative blood in, during the 60s. Now, we were surrounded by, by uh, man, like I said, manufacturing facilities that were working with the government for the space race and all that. Well, O negative blood was the only blood tracked by the U.S. government in the 60s as well because it was the universal donor and we were at war, you know, the NAM, the whole NAM area. So, you know, this whole Vietnam thing, we were O negative. So we all keep going back to 
you know, what could this, what were we part of? Because we were extracted from the vehicle. We were taken out of the vehicle. When we were returned to the vehicle, however that happened, my mother and grandmother were reversed in the front seats and the car ignition was off, which tells me human error. And I've always said that, you know, that there was a human element to what happened with us. Nobody seems to want to cover that part of it. You know, it's always, oh, you saw gray aliens and all that. I never said that. So take us through that. Take us through. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. Okay. Take us through that experience. Take us through. Okay. So you talked earlier about seeing the three, right, in the field. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, again, when we came out of the bridge, I was actually giving my brother a candy. And uh, my grandmother turned around to tell me not to give him a fireball because he could choke. That's how the whole thing started. And in doing so, she looked out the, you know, she was looking out the back of the car and saw this white sphere rising up you know, what it looked like from the, from the water, but who knows where it came from. And then that's when we all started just looking out the windows and all of a sudden there was this, uh, you know, she pulled over the side of the road and it was just capping sound, kind of like stones. I didn't mention this on, on Fox, you know, stone, we heard it wasn't like deep, like an MRI machine, but kind of like an MRI machine, but very high, like a high pitched tapping sound. That was the first thing we heard. And then again, it was just kind of like, um, almost suffocating. Like my mother says it was a pressure, almost like she was you know, wrapped in something tightly. And that's why I reference like being under deep in a pool of water or deep in, you know, like there's a pressure on your head and you feel like that. You don't want to go much deeper because it hurts. You know, it was almost like that. Yet everything seemed amplified, but the normal sounds of life were, were no longer there. You know, it was, we were like in this vacuum, you know, it was like, like being in a vacuum. But was and this then, while you were sitting in the car? Or is this, do you think, because you said no, you were taken the from the car. No, this is while I'm in the car. I'm still in the car. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm behind my mom, who's in the driver's seat, and all of a sudden the whole car lit up. And we think it was from that white sphere. We don't really know where it came from, but it wasn't like floodlights. It wasn't hard on the eyes. It wasn't a dome light. I mean, this just boom. Everything was bright. I could see the dashboard. I could see the, you know, the glove box, you know, everything. You know, the back of my grandmother's head, you know, everything was just like crystal clear, like broad daylight. And then all of a sudden, um, that light went off. And in doing so, then the sound of nature came back. And then that's the last thing I remember from being in the vehicle. I remember um, what I believe where I was underground somewhere. It was very industrial by design. Um, it was nothing fancy. It just looked big, open, like warehouse type of thing. I remember that like it was yesterday. It was grabbed in my arm. It hurt. Um, we came back, you know, in the car. I don't know how that happened. Um, in doing so, my mother and grandmother were now reversed. My grandmother had said she had to start the car, that the ignition was now off. And it had been running. How long do you and, think this and, was? Over what period? I mean, we're talking, I mean, because you know I how far. Yeah. I'll tell you. So <clears throat> she goes down the road a little bit, turns the station wagon around, and heads back to Silk Store, which is in downtown Sheffield, to get help. Because we was like four or five miles away yet. And then to her, it was still like, you know, nine o'clock or so when we closed up the restaurant. And um, so she goes back to Silk and um, gets out. I'm, I come to at this point. My mother's still unconscious. My brother's still not responding. I get out and I'm yelling, Nana, Nana, and I follow my grandmother, you know, into Silk Store. 
which was right next to our diner. Uh, and, um, you know, she wanted some help or whatever. She didn't really know what, what help we needed or, you know, how, <laughs> where to go with this. But when she got in there, it would, they were closing. It was 11 o'clock or so. And so there were several hours, like two and a half hours of time that had gone by. Um, so we could have been anywhere. I mean, there were, there was a national guard, um, base there. There were, there's underground tunnels there. There's all kinds of underground trains there. There's all kinds of underground bases there. I mean, just look it up, you know, Massachusetts underground facilities. They're all over. I mean, there's a train that goes, used to go all the way to Boston. So I still say we were underground somewhere. I think that we had seen something we shouldn't have seen. And, um, whatever that was that put us out, we were taken to be looked at or checked up, you know, whatever it was. And, um, and that's why the mistakes, when we came to, you know, my grandmother and mother being in the opposite seats. And, and, you know, does an alien really know how to turn the ignition off of a Chevy station wagon? Would they even bother, right? Someone shut that car off. Now, we were on a rural road. Nobody was walking down that road. It was out in the middle of nowhere. So we are out of time. Don, I know we've done something a little different today. This is the first time we've actually gone over one whole show with a guest. So we had to cut Tom. We are going to bring him back. I think that's a great idea. For next week. And we're going to actually probably enter a segment of where people can ask some questions. Okay. So we're going to ask folks that if you have any questions, reach out to us. You can get me at 561-953-2007. My extension's 101. Dawn, if they want to reach you in the studio here, how do they get you? The best way really is to go to our Facebook page, right? Secret, the number two, my success. And um, we'll have uh, some links posted up there for uh, Tom's website and those things. And then if you have any questions, just shoot me, shoot me a message because I'll be probably the one taking care of that. <laughs> yes, you're amazing. Yes. Thank you, honey. Um, so, yeah, Facebook secret to the number two, my success. Thanks for being with us and come back next week and we'll hear the rest of Tom Reed's story. Thank you, Tom. You got it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Secret to My Success on Legends 100.3.